Amen. Thanks, brother. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16 this morning. In Pixar's A Bug Life, Flick and the rest of the ants are laboring away tirelessly to bring in a large harvest, harvest every year. Their entire lives are ordered around bringing in as much grain as they can possibly get a hold of. And even then, it still may not be enough food for them to survive. Why is that? Well, it's because an angry, selfish mob of bigger, stronger grasshoppers shows up every time they have a harvest, and they forcefully take their food. The crops brought in, Hopper and his gang show up, and then they have a feast. It's a horrible position for the ants to be in, obviously, and there was no end in sight that it would ever stop. So Hopper says, it's a bug-eat-bug world out there, one of those circle-of-life kind of things. Now let me tell you how things are supposed to work. The sun grows the food, the ants pick the food, and the grasshoppers eat the food. The Israelites found themselves in a similar predicament. A bigger, stronger band of bullies had come to steal their food repeatedly, bringing the Jews to newfound lows. So listen and look at verses 1 through 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Unlike previous foreign kings who would occupy Israel for long periods of time, the Midianites would come back again and again. Whenever the Jews would plant their crops, they would swarm like locusts. They would devour all of the produce and all of the livestock. I just wonder, I, I doubt that we can imagine just how grueling that must have been. Ancient Israel was an agricultural society. That's already hard enough, right? Agriculture is this painfully slow process. And on top of that, even though you may put in all of this work, you're not guaranteed to get any positive results. You can dedicate months of blood and sweat and tears towards getting a harvest, only for it to all go up in smoke. Fires, swarms of locusts, droughts, and just like that, your efforts are gone. But imagine, you finally have a good crop. The plants come in, your hopes begin to soar. Your family is going to be well fed. 
You're going to be able to maybe pick up some new land for next year. Your herds are going to flourish. And then Midianite mobsters show up. And they gobble up everything that you've been pouring your life into. The crops are gone. The livestock is gone. All you're left with is a pile of dirt, a crushed soul, and a sinking feeling that this is going to happen again. They're coming. So what does Israel do? Well, they flee into the mountains so they can secretively try to scratch out a living from the rocks. So again, agriculture is already hard. Agriculture in the mountains, in the rocks, this is nearly impossible. But that's just how low Israel has been brought. The sun grows the food, the Jews pick the food, and the Midianites eat the food. What I want you to see this morning is God's commitment to be with his people in spite of all of this. Even though the Jews have run back to idolatry, God is with them. Even though their repentance is shallow, God is there. Even though their hero is weak and incapable, God is with him to make him strong. My hope this morning then, so you'll just be encouraged. You'll be encouraged by the fact that God is near to his people and that you'll give him praise because he is faithful. So to that end, I want us to pray, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Holy God, I am weak. I am not a man who is mighty in valor, and I ask, Lord, that you would come, that you would help me, that you would give me power to preach your word and proclaim your word faithfully and well. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with your people and all the different weaknesses they may be wrestling with, even in this moment, that you would give them power to listen. And through it, our hearts, Lord, would you cause them to swell up with love for you and a love for holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to step through the story in two parts this morning. Part one, the prophet and the problem. Part two, the angel of the Lord and the answer. Part one, the prophet and the problem. So it's on verse six that as the Israelites took stock of their really dire situation, they finally began to cry out to God for help. And then God responds. He sends a messenger, a prophet. So I want to pause already. I don't want this little detail to slip by you. Isn't it an incredible grace that God would draw near to them and respond to them at all. They cry, and he comes. God doesn't owe these Israelites anything. There is no reason that God couldn't just let their voice diffuse into the air into nothingness. They have been disobedient. They have intermarried with the Canaanites. They have worshipped idols. Up to this point, I'm sure they've been crying out to those idols, these idols of stone and wood and gold. And they're deaf and they're dumb. These idols can't do anything. They're powerless. They don't answer back. And when they don't answer back, they come crawling back to God, pleading for deliverance. Now that they've made their bed, shouldn't they have to sleep in it? 
And the answer to that is, of course, yes, they should. And even though God isn't obligated to say anything back, he does. Our God speaks. Not only does he speak, but he is especially inclined to answer those who are crying out to him in agony. Like a mother who hears her crying baby. Or like a shepherd who hears the weak bleeding of his sheep. God turns. He listens. He draws near. And he responds. And that's just God's character. That's just what he's like. And we should worship him for it. No one is as compassionate and as long-suffering as our God. And back to the prophet. We don't know his name, but we do know what God says through him. And it's basically this. God describes his work, and then he describes their problem. And that really is the essence of revelation. Sweet, undeserved revelation. Our two biggest needs, that we would know God, and that we would know our state before him, is explained freely to us. It's like a teacher's aid to a blind student. If we let God, he'll take our hands and he'll drag it across all the right answers. We don't have to keep fumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out all the answers to life's mysteries. And I don't know about you this morning. I don't know where you look for answers in this life. Maybe you look to politics. Maybe you look to science. Maybe you just put headphones over your ears and you try to drown out any of these tough questions. But wherever you're looking, if you're not looking at God's revelation, I urge you to recognize it's futile. You will not find the answers that you were looking for there. But if you'll listen, if you'll focus your attention on God and what he is saying through his word, then you will come face to face with the glory of God. And you will see yourself in the light of his majesty. To paraphrase one author, you will see the sun, and by it, you will see everything else. Well, the Jews, they're getting a taste of this very revelation. Starting in verse 8, look there, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And these words, they should remind us of the various deeds that God did to bring his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And you'll notice a little later on in verse 13, Gideon says that their forefathers used to recount these same deeds to them, to their children. So what deeds? Just a quick review. When the Jews were enslaved by Pharaoh's iron fist, God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. He brought plagues against Egypt. He turned the Nile into blood. He caused boils to bubble on their skin. He did many terrifying wonders. He sent an angel of death, but he mercifully passed over those who put blood from a lamb on their doorpost. 
God accompanied the Jews in a giant pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He opened up the Red Sea. He let them pass through it unarmed. But he brought those waters down, crushing Pharaoh's army behind them. While the Jews were in the middle of the desert, he fed them with manna from heaven. He provided them quail. He provided them water from a rock. He did all these amazing things to sustain them. And then God brought them to the mountain and he made a covenant with them. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. He promised to be their God. And he promised that they would be his precious people. He said, I'll bless you if you're obedient, but there will be curses if you are disobedient. He instructed them on building the tabernacle so that he might dwell with them. He defeated the armies on the outskirts of the promised land. And then he led them in victory into the promised land. These amazing things that God has done. He's done it with his people. And this prophet is saying, this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And then he reminds them, what was the very first commandment that God told them? It was this, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, the one that goes right along with it, what does it say? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, these idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. But they've broken these commands. They have disobeyed God. And so the prophet finishes in verse 10 saying these words, but you have not obeyed my voice. So what does the prophet reveal then about God? Well, he reveals that God is all-powerful, that he is merciful, that he is holy, that he is present. What does the prophet reveal about these Jews? Well, they think they have a Midianite problem. But that's not what the prophet says. The prophet reveals that their real problem is their disobedience. The Jews don't understand that the Midianite invasion is a symptom of their disease. Their covenant disobedience has led to covenant curses. So they're crying out to God not to actually repent of their disobedience. They're not owning up to their bigger, deeper problem. Instead, they're crying out because they loathe the consequences of their disobedience. They're like a kid who gets caught and he's in trouble and he cries. Not because he understands that he's been bad, but because he doesn't like getting caught. He's sorry that he has to go through the punishment of his disobedience. And so this prophet is calling them to reckon with the real problem that they have. He puts his finger on it. He says, you know what should break your heart more than anything else? It's not these Midianites. It's your own disobedience. You don't listen to the voice of God. Let me suggest this morning that you and I have the same issue. We have varying opinions about what our biggest problem is. But God has revealed to us what our biggest problem is. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. When you peel back the layers of who you are, what do you find? Who do you think your 
Who do you think you are at the core? When you answer the question, deep down I am what? What do you say? Deep down I am an athlete. Maybe a mom. Perhaps you would say, deep down I am a businessman or a businesswoman. Let's push past what you do. I bet most of us would answer something like this. Deep down, some reiteration we would say, I'm a good person. Well, can I tell you the truth about yourself? The person who knows you better than you could ever know yourself tells you something completely different than that. He tells us that deep down, you and I are a disobedient creature. We're like a rebellious teenager who won't listen to the voice of his parents. Or worse, we're like a rebel who's picked up their weapons and is engaging in guerrilla warfare against the king. But don't you know, God made you to be in right relationship with himself. You were made to image him by following his commands. And we respond with a resounding no. We share the same human nature as the Israelites, friends. They have a disobedience problem. We have a disobedience problem. So what's the solution then? Well, what's terrifying, absolutely terrifying about what this prophet says is that he doesn't mention a solution at all. He doesn't say, yeah, you guys have been bad, but God's going to take care of everything now. It's it's still going to work out. He just leaves it there. He says, you disobey God's voice. That's it. These words are cold as ice. They're as black as night. They are utterly devoid of any hope. So did God draw near to his people through this prophet just to tell them their faults and then just to leave them? No, he didn't. And oh, how grateful we should be that God doesn't do that because he could do it And he would be in the right. Do you remember the main point of Judges? Stated in the very last verse, Judges 21 through 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So doing right in their own eyes, it's really the same thing as just they disobey the voice of God. And one reason the people continue to disobey God is that they don't have a king. They need some kind of leader to come to help them to love the Lord, to repent of their sins, to begin obeying the voice of God. So while the prophet leaves the people with a cold, hard truth of their disobedience and their sin, isn't it amazing that God is already in the background working? He's raising up a leader and a deliverer. Will this man be able to lead the people in righteousness? Will he finally cause the people of God to obey the voice of God? Leads us into part two, the angel of the Lord and the answer. The angel of the Lord and the answer. The change from verse 10 to verse 11 is like a hard cut in a movie scene. The prophet delivers his last line and then cut, behold, your hero, Gideon. And here he is in verse 11. 
You can look at it there. Here he is beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So basically, he's hiding away in a shallow hole, secretly separating grain from some wheat heads, just trying to get a little bit to eat, hoping that no Midianites who were maybe marauding about would see him. This is hardly the stuff of a fearless warrior, of the guy, your hero, who's going to come and save the people of Israel. We learn from verse 15, from Gideon's own mouth. Look there, he says, Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And over the next three chapters, we're going to see that Gideon struggles with doubt, that he repeatedly tests God, that he's full of the fear of man, that he is greedy, scared little Gideon, the weakest member of the weakest clan of the tribe of Manasseh. Can he really deliver God's people from the Midianites? And can he really deliver them from the larger obedience problem that the Israelites have? We'll have to see. So follow along with me now then. So we read about God coming and commissioning Gideon to save Israel. Starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring you up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, first things first, who is this angel of the Lord character? His title shows up several times in the Bible. Sometimes it's just an angel of the Lord, an angel sent by God with a special message. So think of Luke chapter 1, verse 19. The angel of the Lord, speaking to Mary and Joseph, says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. Right, just a regular messenger. We don't know a lot about these angels, but we know that they are not divine and they are not human. However, on other occasions, like this one, we read about the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Let's look at a few passages together to try to work this out. Go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 through 13. Genesis 16, 7 through 13. After Hagar fled Sarah, she was wandering in the desert with her infant son, Ishmael. Then the angel of the Lord, in verse 7, it says, Found her by a spring of water. 
And then throughout the rest of those verses, they have a brief conversation. And by the end of it, Hagar was sure that she had interacted with God himself. Look there towards the end of verse 13. She says, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So that is, when she saw the angel of the Lord with her physical eyes, she understood that she was looking at the God who sees her and cares for her. She sees the God who cares for her. Turn over to Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Should look familiar. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Judges 2, 1 through 4. In verse 1, we see that the angel of the Lord sometimes travels around, just like you and me. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. That's fascinating to me. So apparently, this angel of the Lord is walking or riding around like a regular person. But then the angel delivers a message. And when he speaks, he speaks as if God himself is speaking. The angel of the Lord doesn't say the things like what a lot of prophets say. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. But instead, he just begins speaking in the first person right away. Start about halfway through verse 1. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And on and on, you see that he talks in the first person. Very, very interesting. Turn over to Judges 13. Now going forward in Judges to the story of Samson. It's a very long interaction here with the angel of the Lord. But what we read about is Samson's parents are interacting with the angel of the Lord. And on the one hand, they interact with him like any other person. But on the other hand, it's very clear that this is a special person, some kind of person of distinguishment. There's a particularly revealing exchange in verse 18. Look there. Samson's dad, Manoah, he asks, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, has no problem disclosing his name. But the angel of the Lord gives a very mysterious answer. <laughs> it's very reminiscent of the mysterious answer that God gave to Moses. When he says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. But I think the clearest description of the angel of the Lord is in our text right here in chapter 6. Look at verse 12. So turn back over to Judges chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Who's talking? Well, the angel of the Lord is talking. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, But now look at verse 14. Who's talking in verse 14? As Gideon and the angel of the Lord are conversing, verse 14 says, And the Lord, all caps, that means Yahweh, God himself, the Lord turned to him and said. And that really, that, that settles it. <laughs> the angel of the Lord is the Lord. So, we see from these texts then that the angel of the Lord is 
Yahweh incarnate. This is Yahweh in the flesh. Fully man. Walks around, talks to you face to face. Fully divine. He is the Lord. This presents a small problem, though. God makes it perfectly clear. You can't see God's face and live. He says so himself in Exodus 33, verse 20, if you want to look at it. So because of this, when Gideon and Manoah see the angel of the Lord, they melt in fear because they know that they have seen God face to face. We'll see that in the text next week. We'll see it when we get to Samson. They think they're going to die. I've seen God. I'm going to die. But there is a character in the Bible who is fully God and fully man, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, who is the burning center of God's glory, a person you can behold and not only not die, but by beholding them, him, you are given more life as you hold his gaze. And that person is Jesus Christ. Is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is he Jesus? Many theologians seem to think so, and I think they have good reason to, and I, I think I've tried to demonstrate that. What this means then is that God wasn't content to only draw near through a prophet. He came to the Israelites personally. He walked over to their hero, and he had a conversation with them. This isn't a shoot and email kind of relationship. This is a talking face-to-face, look-you-in-the-eyes kind of relationship. So more can be said about the angel of the Lord. And I don't want this to turn into a lecture on, on one of the more mysterious characters in the Bible. But suffice it to say that Gideon is in the presence of the I Am, one whose name is wonderful. He is talking to the Lord himself. And the Lord has come to personally commission Gideon to save Israel. Now, the first thing the angel of the Lord says to Gideon is this. The Lord is with you. And of course, that statement seems completely dislocated from reality. If Gideon were drinking something, assuming he had anything to drink, which he probably didn't, he probably would have just spit it out. And Gideon's immediate response is, if God is with us, then why is all this bad stuff happening to us? Our fathers recounted all these awesome things that God used to do. Well, I don't see him doing them. Where, where is he? If he's here with us, tell me where he's at. But wait, think about a few verses earlier. Didn't God just send a prophet and tell the people why they were suffering? He just revealed that the people are suffering because they won't listen to his voice and they continue to disobey him and worship idols. And more than that, before this prophet came, all of this was spelled out when they entered into the covenant. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. God has not forsaken the Israelites. They have forsaken God. And with that comes suffering. And brothers and sisters, can't we be just like Gideon here? Aren't we guilty of the same things? Don't we also find ourselves pleading with God for answers 
when he's literally written the answers down for us. We can sometimes confuse ourselves with Job when really we're acting like Gideon, right? Job cries out because calamity has come on him out of the blue. And he doesn't know why he's suffering. There's a great amount of confusion about what is happening. And it's not until well after the fact that God brings him the answer. And the Lord declares that he is sovereign over his suffering. And that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And when Job hears the answer, Job falls on his face. And he worships God. But with Gideon, God has explained the answer sufficiently. And on top of that, when the curses come, he sends a prophet, puts his finger on the text and says... See, I told you, if you disobey God, you will suffer consequences. And despite all of this, unlike Job who falls on his face and worships God, Gideon has the gall to look him in his face, in his face, in person, and say, I don't know why we're suffering. Where's God at? He needs to be doing his part. It's madness. It's utter madness. And so while sometimes it's true that our suffering can be like Job, the cause of which is the unsearchable wisdom and plan of God, other times our suffering is like Gideon and the Israelites. We're just suffering the consequences of our own sin. And we don't want to call it what it is, our sin. If you become unequally yoked with an unbeliever, you're inviting friction into your life. And that's why God says, don't do it. If you're quick-tempered, you're going to unnecessarily set fire to all sorts of stuff in your life. If you're impatient, you're going to rush into poor and painful decisions. And if you sear your conscience, you will shipwreck your faith and your whole life. And we could just keep going and going. Example after example could be multiplied. So before you dump ashes on your head and Rip off your clothes in despair. Consider that maybe God has already explained your suffering. And consider that it may be your own sin that God is bringing you to account for, that you must reckon with, that you must repent of and turn back to him. And then you will find solace there. But that means we have to apply ourselves to his word. And we have to believe what we find there. Something that Gideon and the Israelites were not doing. So Gideon raises the question in verse 13, where is God in our suffering? But moving on to verse 14, we see that the Lord just pushes right past it. He doesn't really respond to it. He just gives us the same answer, the same thing that he already said in verse 12. And that's because God's already explained why they're suffering. And then secondly, it's because Gideon isn't understanding that he is the solution to their suffering. So Gideon says, why are we suffering? Where is God? And God says, for what must be the millionth time since he's covenanted with the Jews, you're suffering because you won't obey my voice. And besides, I'm here right now sending you to go fix it. And it's amazing just how thick-headed we can be sometimes. He doesn't see it. Gideon is totally oblivious to what the angel of the Lord is saying. God is going to perform another miraculous rescue even though these Jews certainly do not deserve it. And he's going to do it through this unlikely hero, through Gideon. Now this hero 
is twice referred to according to his might. Did you see that? In verse 12, look there. God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. And look at, look at verse 14. It tells him, go in this might of yours. It's painfully ironic, isn't it? Yes, even God sometimes uses sarcasm. There is nothing about Gideon that screams mighty man of valor. And if you're not sure, over the next few weeks, he's going to prove that again and again. And to Gideon's credit, though, he is painfully aware of how ill-equipped he is for this job. And that puts him in good company with a lot of great heroes in the Bible. So consider Jeremiah. When God called Jeremiah to be his mouthpiece to the Jews, Jeremiah, he balked at the idea. He's like, what? He says, quote, Lord God, <laughs> behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. He goes on to explain that he's scared. So here is Jeremiah, young and terrified. Surely there is someone better that God could send to his people. And in a sense, Jeremiah was right. An older, wiser man would probably be more equipped for the task of going and speaking to the Israelites. Nonetheless, God sent Jeremiah. Consider Moses. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, Moses too was in complete disbelief. Why would you send me to save your people from the Egyptians? Why should, care, should Pharaoh care what I have to say? For that matter, why should the Jews care what I have to say? And what about my slow speech? And who should I tell them sent me? And God, I'm just puny old Moses. There has to be someone else that is better equipped for the job. Send them. And in a sense, Moses is right. What's so special about Moses that God should send Moses? But nonetheless, God sends Moses. So on the one hand, we should appreciate their humility and their self-awareness. We don't always see ourselves that way. And we should, we must. It is unimaginably foolish to be self-confident before God. I mean, imagine, right, if Gideon or Jeremiah or Moses responded to God when he called them, and they said, it's about time you asked me to do this, Lord. I've, I've been thinking I'm the right guy for the job this whole time. I mean, crazy. These men have no reason to be cocky or even the least bit confident. They are brittle clay pots in the hands of an awesome and almighty potter. But on the other hand, they shouldn't hesitate. They should step up and do the job that God is calling them to. After all, isn't it God who is calling them to the work? He already knows that they are woefully insufficient, but that's why he is calling them. Their weakness is the setting that shows off the jewel of God's awesome power. God accompanied Moses with great power, with incredible signs. God put his hand over Jeremiah's mouth and gave him his words. Three times God says to Gideon something to the effect of, the Lord is with you. Do I not send you, but I will be with you. 
God isn't just throwing the lamb to the wolves. He is going to show off his lion-like power through Gideon's fragile frame. And God loves to do this. He does it in the scriptures all the time. And he does it for us too. He loves taking normal people and making them mighty. Not mighty in their own strength, but mighty in the strength that he provides. And through it, he gets all of the glory. That's another reason that the angel of the Lord can look at Gideon and say, you are a mighty man of valor. He's not a mighty man of valor. But when God is with him, he is a mighty man of valor. Not mighty on his own, but mighty by God's presence. So God is with Israel, even though they are steeped in sin. He is with their rescuer, Gideon, and he's steeping him in power. So I wonder, do you see your life like this? God may be calling us to, or may not be calling us to, an intense rescue mission like Gideon, but he is calling us to be obedient, perfectly obedient every single day. What is the Lord calling you to that you feel like you're powerless to carry out? Do you need to fight for your marriage? Are you struggling against crippling anxiety? Does it feel like you'll never get the upper hand on sexual immorality? I exhort you to realize that, like Gideon, God is asking you to do something that is impossible for you to do in your own strength. And if you're not sure, just think about what Jesus says. He summarizes God's commandments as love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible repeatedly says to be holy, even as God is holy. What you're facing is impossible. It's no secret that God is asking us to do things that we cannot do on our own. And these commands, these various tasks, they should humble us. They should cause us to fall on our face and say to God, I can't possibly do this. But at the same time, hasn't God promised that he will be with you? Hasn't he told you that he will be be with you and give you power? The New Testament is replete with precious promises that while we are weak, he is strong. Just consider Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, God is working in you, even now, to work out what is pleasing to him. And is he not faithful to do it? Hasn't he been faithful to do it? Have you and your spouse had small victories? Have you had a small victory over anxiety? Have you won some battles against sexual sin? Maybe not perfectly, but truly, God is giving you some success. To use the language of the angel of the Lord, the Lord has sent you into the battle with sin. And isn't he with you in the fight? Oh, Christian, 
hasn't Jesus also already won the war? He's already put all of this sin to death. He came. He lived the perfect life. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead, crushing the enemy's head. God has shown off his mighty power in rescuing us from evil. And if you will simply repent of your sins and trust in him, you will be saved. You will be purchased from the depths of hell. You will be united to him. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with power. The angel of the Lord that is sending Gideon into the fight is the same character who is in you, making you mighty against sin. The same spirit is in you. The words, I will be with you, have never been truer than they are for the Christian. God is around you. God is with you. God is in you. And you are in him. You cannot be closer to God. You cannot be closer to the source of all power. He promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is giving you might right now to win the battle. So fight. Pick up your sword. Continue to obey his voice. Continue to do the impossible. Keep doing it in the strength that he provides. And then, as he gives you various victories, give him the glory for every righteous act that you do because he is the one who is doing it through you. So the Israelites, their idolatry has led them into immense suffering. And uh, they're now in the hands of the Midianites. But God, in his kindness, draws near to them and sends them a prophet. He reveals their problem, that they have a disobedience problem. And they can't fix it on their own. Just like you and I can't fix it on our own. But God doesn't stop there. God has drawn near personally to raise up your rescuer. And our rescuer is Jesus Christ. And here in Israel, he's going to be with weak little Gideon. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that God will display his power, his unimaginable power. And through it, may we be drawn in to his glory and give him all the praise. So with that, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. You are kind. You do draw near to us. You give us the power to obey. You've forgiven us for our sin in Christ, who was obedient in our place. We thank you, Lord, for giving us life. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk in the newness of life. Would you help us to trust that you are with us, that you are empowering us? And may we follow your voice. Would you glorify your name through this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.